These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Arkakshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived thirty years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived thirty-four years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah, and Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hi everybody, we are always being inundated with uh, begging letters saying please can we have more lengthy genealogies read out publicly at church. We want more lists of names, we want the names to be difficult to remember and hard to pronounce, and we want the, the dates and the, the ages of the people when they live to be thoroughly confusing. Please, more of this, and, uh, and we're, we're keen to oblige. So we're only doing what you've asked uh, by having these bits of the Bible read out to you. Why are these bits in the Bible? The Bible is more like an apple than it is like an orange. Uh, some of you have heard me talk about this before, and if you have, be quiet, because I want to explain it again. Um, an orange, you don't eat the whole thing, right? You don't eat the skin, because you'll be ill. Um, if you eat an apple, you, you eat the whole thing. In fact, the whole thing is good for you. The, the bits that are juicy and flavoursome um, are, are nice and good for you, but so are the bits that aren't, you know, the, 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 the core and all the rest. You can eat it, it's safe. Uh, and the Bible's like that. The bits that are juicy and nice, the bits that we put on fridge magnets, 
then they're good for you. But the bits like this, we think, why is it even here? It's also good for you. That, that's the claim, at least, that the Bible makes in, in the New Testament. Paul writes to Timothy, and he, he, uh, he makes this statement. 2 Timothy 3, 16, famous verse. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture, all including those bits with names, all of it is breathed out by God. That means a few things. I want to sort of test this long reading that we just had against the claims the Bible makes for itself. Let's see. Let's see if it's true that this is, first of all, reliable and trustworthy. You know, if it's breathed out by God, then it's got to be true. It's got to be accurate. It can't be lies. Uh, let's, let's think about that. Secondly, is it profitable? That's what the Bible's saying. It's profitable. Is that list of names profitable? And thirdly, is it, is it spiritual? That's the claim of that verse, that it's breathed out by God. It's inspired. It's, it's by the Holy Spirit these words come to us. So let's check those categories. First of all, is it trustworthy? And, and you know why I'm asking this. When you're getting told about someone who lived for 600 years, uh, you don't need a medical degree to know that that's unusual. And that's not the first time the book of Genesis has made that kind of claim. We've got people living for extortionate, crazy lifespans. And, and that's one of the many ways in which the, the book of Genesis seems to sort of test the limits of our modern credulity. Because we come to the Bible with all kinds of uh, consensual scientific opinions, things that we, we know to be very true in our present scientific understanding. These are the things that, well, well science has proven this, science has proven that, and it's very obvious and clear. And, and this seems to smack against it. So, so who's going to win? And that puts us in definite, tricky circumstances. If, we, if we're wanting to take the Bible seriously, how do we handle some of the more peculiar claims of the book of Genesis? Now, I can't, in this short message, and with my relatively light level of expertise, uh, answer all those questions in this session. That's not my plan. But I do want to give you one or two very, very important principles if we're to take the Bible seriously. And, and why? Why would we? take the Bible seriously. Why does Emmanuel Church take the Bible so seriously? Some people get really annoyed at this church for that. The reason why is because we're Christians. We believe in Jesus. We're following Jesus. When you follow Jesus, you take him seriously. If Jesus is risen from the dead, it changes everything. Of course, if he's dead, well, problem solved. <laughs> we don't have to, we can ignore this ancient book with its peculiar stories that seem semi-mythical at points. We can just say, well, it's just, that's, that's an ancient book. What would you expect? It's pre-modern. It's, 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 you know, it's from a completely Bronze Age culture. Why would you take it seriously in the first place? If Jesus is dead, but if Jesus is alive, that changes everything because he himself asserted the final absolute authority of the scriptures. He himself lived by them. He himself came under their authority. He saw his life and death and resurrection as an outworking of the authority of the scripture. He lived by them. He won arguments by them. He defeated temptation and evil through them. And he asserted to his disciples things like, the scriptures cannot be broken. Word for word, that's what he said. He would make those kinds of comments frequently. 
Jesus took the Bible utterly seriously. And so if we follow him, if we recognize him as the risen king from the grave, on the throne, God of all things, if we see him as that, we must be consistent and take his view of the scriptures as well because he wouldn't have lied to us about that. He can't be simply wrong if he's God. So we, we need to be humble as we approach these difficult matters. We need to come to it not with an arrogant 21st century rationalist assumption that imagines that because we've, we've learned a few things, therefore we have some kind of final authority over the things of scripture. No, we need to come and say, how do we work this out? Now, that doesn't take the problems away in the sense that we still need to think, how do these fit together? And various people will, will make all kinds of suggestions. I mean, for example, on this passage here, things like the age of various people being so long, some would say, well, maybe it's referring to actually a family dynasty. It's not referring to an individual person, but a, a little family tree that lengthened to that, that uh, length. And that's a possible solution. There's all kinds of suggestions that are made. And sometimes they're really helpful. My advice, and again, I'm speaking as a pastor and not someone who's, who's able to bring all the kind of archaeological expertise and so on. My advice to you is be like that good cop in the cop drama. You know, in, in kind of crime uh, uh, dramas where they want a quick result, you know, like top brass want a quick result on this one, Sarge. And they, they bring someone in for questioning and they, they ba basically say, bang to rights, you're, it's you, you're definitely the killer. And, and you, you know it can't be because it's only 20 minutes into the show and that would never happen. So you're thinking, yeah, it's not going to, they're wrong, they're wrong. But they're, they're itching for a result because the press are ganging up on them or, or you know, the commissioner is, is getting cross or the government are getting involved. And it's like, oh, we've got to get a result. And our itching desire to be able to explain all the bits that confuse us can lead us sometimes into things that aren't all that helpful. And what we need is humble, patient, prayerful commitment to reading scripture slowly over a lifetime. And if we hit a problem to not think, the Bible can't be true. But to think, ah, this is an opportunity for me to learn how the Bible is a deeper, more intricate, more extraordinarily crafted over millennia by a God of extraordinary creative power, a greater book than I thought it was. And that's going to take me a lifetime to come to terms with. When you hit a problem, when the Bible confuses you, or when the Bible offends you, and if you're reading it properly, it will. If you've never been confused by the Bible or never been offended by the Bible, you're not reading it. But when it does, well, it's a bit like the grit that gets into an oyster shell. You, you've got to just, you've got to think, read, consider, ask for help. And we'll, we'll, we're a church, we'd love to help. Get into situations where you can learn and see what kind of pearls come out of the oyster shell in time. My experience after decades of being a Christian, I'm not going to tell you how many, I am still staggered by every time I find something fresh in this book in terms of just how it fits together <laughs> and things that I thought, how, how is it that I never saw this? Just this last Friday morning, I'm reading uh, one of my favourite Bible teachers, a dead guy, uh, who's talking about 
the link between Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians 5, and, and he's showing something. And I, I've seen that link before, but I've never seen it. I saw something I've never seen before, and it's so powerful. I thought, how did I never see that before? But this is years and years into my life. As a, I still feel like a little tiny novice, and I'm the guy teaching it. Listen, friends, it's a joy to find bits in the Bible that stretch you because it will help you to grow. It will give you muscle and it will help you to learn the ways of an infinitely wise God. So, yeah, I believe, like my master does, that this book is reliable. It's magnificent. It's glorious. But let's move on to whether it's profitable. Is it profitable? That's the claim that Paul makes to Timothy in that verse. Let's see, is a list of names profitable? I think there's a few clues for us. If we look at the fact that it keeps repeating the word fathered. So-and-so fathered who? Who fathered this one? Who fathered that one? They keep, they keep showing how each one is a fathering forth of a next generation. Now put that in the context of the, the story the Bible's telling. It's telling us about... A world God made perfect and a human race sent to rule on his behalf this world that God made, this this paradise, this garden, this planet, this, this perfection. But the human race, you and I, we torched our relationship with him and thereby abdicated our calling to rule it wisely on his behalf and invited death into the human experience. That's our legacy. That's, that's what we've given to his creation. And then God speaks in Genesis chapter 3 into this tragic situation. But the, the thing he says is a word of promise and hope. He, he says to the woman, he says, your seed will crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. What, what he means by that is a child will be born of a woman who will overturn this advance of evil. Someone will be born from a woman who will destroy death forever. That's the promise of one of the first pages of the Bible from a gracious, amazing God. And then what you have is page after page of human experience, which seems to continually result in death. And what you have in this particular one is this kind of fathering, ongoing fathering, more fathering, more fathering. But where does it lead us to? You'd think, perhaps, if you've been reading the story up till chapter 11, that something good is going on. There's been one or two legacies that we've seen, one or two dynasties that have seemed more positive. Uh, The the dynasty of, of Seth, the family of Seth, which seems to be in a sense, kind of closer to God. There's a kind of God-fearing atmosphere in that particular family, different to the other people, it seems. And then Noah's sons, you've got Shem, who is, again, slightly more in tune with God and his children afterwards. And that's what's happening here in this latter part of chapter 11. We're following the, the dynasty of Shem. We're following, is, is, is that carrying on as we'd hoped? Our hopes for this one that's going to be born, this, this one that will be brought forth in humanity, that will turn things back and restore our fortunes and bring us out of death into life. When's he coming? When's this champion going to be 
born and emerge. We're looking, we're watching each generation. We're hoping and hoping and hoping and hoping. And the family of Shem is perhaps the one that will bring it forth. But as we read these names, as, as you were following it with me, what did you notice? It didn't, it didn't seem positive, did it? You notice even the, the ages, mysterious as they are, get shorter. 600 years at the start of the family tree and then up to the end it's more like 200 years it's like death is looming closer death isn't going away death is coming in tight and then we see the reference to Sarah the 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 last wife that's mentioned in this passage it's it's Sarah who is barren so her, her father-in-law, Terah, he dies. That's the last verse of chapter 11. Terah died in Haran. And his, his son, Abram, is married to a barren woman. It's like it's taken hundreds and hundreds of years to come to this point of death and barrenness. There's no promise. There's no life. There's no visible hope. And then consider the name Terah itself. Abram's father, Terah, his name is linked with moon worship. In other words, paganism. In other words, just like all the other generations, all the other families of the planet, his family now has turned as well to the worship of creation. They're not fearing God. They don't know God. They don't have any idea spiritually the light has gone from bright to dim, to dimmer, to dimmest, to gone. The light's flickered out. It's a tragic story. It's a slow story. It's, it's, it's horrible to watch these generations come and go. Years, years, years upon years, centuries it would seem. And the, the outcome of all this fathering, fathering forth of generations of men begetting men, the fertility of men, obviously a big thing in this prehistoric culture. Men who are potent and fertile and can raise sons that can raise other sons. This, this is our hope. We can raise families that will be the hope of the world. And the Bible says no. There's no hope ultimately. This, this ends up going out in a whimper. It's, it's a dark story. And when I say it's profitable, it's profitable in the sense that it reminds us strongly of our foolishness in being dependent on ourselves. Our foolishness in... It's what, it's what the Bible talks about again and again, sometimes in very concrete kinds of ways. When you get to the New Testament and you get the Apostle Paul Again, speaking to the church in Corinth about the, the hardships and difficulties that he'd been through in his life recently, he says, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The, 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 the profitableness of this stuff, the usefulness of it, is it gives us a context to understand the circumstances we go through where it feels, it feels honestly like, doesn't it feel like this sometimes that God is deliberately wearing us down? God is deliberately making us realise, I, I can't do this. I, I haven't got what it takes. Ever felt like that? God will get you to that point from time to time. He'll use circumstances and he'll use... 
sometimes painful reminders. He'll use, he'll use your, your own uh, inability against a certain situation to bring you to the point of, of awareness. I, I haven't got it in myself. I may have ability to do so much, so much. You may have incredible talents and skills, but you'll get to the point, at least occasionally, where you'll see that they still fall far short of what's ultimately needed, the ultimate desperate need that faces you, the spiritual one, <laughs> the, the ability to overcome even the darkest powers like death itself. No, these things are so beyond us. However hard we try, God patiently brings us to that point of seeing it. It might take us much longer than it takes God to realise <laughs> that we can't do it. But God's patient. He'll take time. He'll even take generations, it seems, to bring us to desperation, to bring us to, a, in a sense, to bring us to a place of hopelessness. So my comment on this point is don't freak out. If you're being brought to that time, if you're being brought even as a Christian, maybe you follow Jesus, maybe you've been a Christian for years, maybe you recently became a Christian and you're surprised by how spiritually quiet things feel at the moment. You're surprised and thrown by how you don't feel sufficient for the time you're going through. You're surprised at how you're falling into old temptations maybe or habits and you're thinking, what? I thought this was supposed to be so easy. I thought I'd won. I thought this was all sorted. And you're realising your weakness. And God will be in that. God's determined to bring you to that. But it's not for its own sake. He's not sadistic. Let's look at the third thing. The third thing I said that the scripture claims for itself. It's accurate. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. It's profitable. Useful. Edifying. Thirdly, spiritual. It's spiritual. What do, how, how do I mean that? And... and how does a list of names seem spiritual? Many people give up on their Bible saying they thought it would be uplifting. And it's like, list of names, that's not spiritual. What do I mean by spiritual? Well, when Paul says to Timothy, the scripture is breathed out by God, he really does mean the spirit, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, a person is in, is, is infusing these words with life. This is no ordinary book. It's, it's pulsing with the life of God. And, and who does the Holy Spirit live to bring attention to? Who is he most excited about? Who is he drawing our focus on? The Son. The Son of God. The promised one. He, he testifies concerning Jesus. This book is dripping with Jesus. Because it's written by the Spirit who can't keep his mind off. Glory of Jesus. He wants you to see the glory of Jesus. How do I see Jesus in this story here of names, deaths? Well, I see lots of fathering going on. And then I see death at the end of it. But then I remember the promise was made to the woman in Genesis 3. From your seed will come one who will bruise the serpent's head promise is actually not made to the dad in Genesis 3 but made to the mum there's there's a promise that the whole scripture is is kind of chaining together a promise towards a mother <laughs> that we know very well from the Christmas story who couldn't have a child because she'd not even been with a man 
God says, look, I, I will take responsibility for fertility. All I want is your obedience and trust. I'll bring forth the saviour of the world in your apparently empty womb. Your emptiness is an opportunity for my grace. Your, your emptiness, your coming to the end of yourself, your sense of failure, sense of exhaustion maybe, sense of weakness is a glorious opportunity for my unique sufficiency, says God. God brings forth his son Jesus into a world that doesn't deserve him, couldn't have, couldn't have created him, couldn't have brought him forth. No, it was a virgin birth. And this story of Abram and Sarah, Sarah's barren. She can't have children. And God's going to bring his seed into the world, the, the, the family that will ultimately bring Jesus into the world. He starts, why would you start with a barren woman and an old man? Why would God do that? Of course he does that. That's exactly what he does. That's his way. When we say, I haven't got what it takes. When we say, I, I don't know who to turn to. I haven't got, I'm not strong enough. When we say, like, like Paul says in, in the same letter to the Corinthians, when he says to God, I, I don't know how to cope with this problem. I don't know how to get through this difficulty, this sickness, this, this pain that I'm going through, this confusion, this lack of answers to prayer. I don't know how to get through it. And he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. God shows up like no other time in our weakness. It's like, it's like when we feel deeply self-sufficient, when we feel confident and strong and we've got it sussed and we've nailed out a plan and it would persuade anyone, it's good. It looks impressive. It's, it's like the Tower of Babel. It's really impressive. It's the best that we can do. It's like we just, we're just too noisy. It's like God's power isn't shown at times like that. God's power is not made manifest. It's not made perfect at those times. It's made perfect in our weakness. It's made perfect when you and me realise, I can't do this. I haven't got it. And we simply trust him. And that sometimes means one foot in front of the other, right? It just means trusting. I'll tell you what, as a church, we've got a bit of a season of that, haven't we? We're going to start meeting again more and more. We're going to start gathering across our sites. We'll start doing stuff. And it will feel weak. It will feel a bit small. It will feel a bit unimpressive. It'll feel a bit like a church plant. It'll feel like just starting with a few people and not a lot of people on rotors, not a lot of kids work. And it will... It will be tempting for us to think, well, this can't be good. God's not involved in this. But how wrong we'll be, because it's at that point of our weakness and desperate need and insufficiency that we give space. We say, God, we start crying out, we start praying. We do things like Big Wednesday, not because it's a date in the diary, but because it's who we are. We live before him. Our hopes are in him. We say, Jesus, you are the one that was born in a virgin's womb. You're the one that brings forth life when we've come to the end of ourselves. You're the one that brings hope when there isn't any. So we turn confidently to you. We, we take one step, we put it in front of another. We take bread and wine. We, we remember our Bibles. We pray. We just do the stuff <laughs> that we're called to do. And we start to watch and see how he shows up. Because he promises that he will. He promises us wonderful 
wonderful things. And so the things that we've hoped for and yearned for, they're not, they're not there to mock us. Must have been such a strange thing for a man like Abram to have the name Abram. It means great father. He didn't have any kids. What a weird name. What an embarrassing name. We can feel that about church, about life, about business. Maybe you personally, you've, you're not sure about your job. You're not sure about anything personally. You look at the state of the nation. You think, I, I don't know what to hope for. I say to you, remember the Lord of glory who makes great promises and gives us his best when we are at our weakest. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your faithfulness, your sufficiency in our weakness. And we pray, Lord, through this season, through this praying this week, through this season of recovery, regathering, we long to see the glory of your Son shown again and again in our lives, in our church, in our city. In Jesus' name, amen.